go. Finding the rock. Amen. Everybody excited tonight? I know it's hot out there, but are you, are you hot spiritually too? Amen. I tell you, it was, it was good to see somebody over there in England just red hot for God. Just, and God moving among these people. They worshiped, I'm telling you. They worshiped God. They were spirit-filled, on fire. It was really something to see. It was encouraging because all it takes is a small spark to get a fire going. Amen? Well, we're two weeks left in Colossians and we're done. So let me do something a little bit unusual. Where do you want to go next? Now, I'm going to ask God anyway. But I want to know what you're... Because sometimes, I listen all the time to the, to the congregation. I listen to what they're struggling with and what you're dealing with and what you know, you're wondering about and curious about. But if, if you could go into any book or any, any topic, where would you want to go? I've done Revelations. I'm not doing that again for a while. But that's a great one. That's a great one. We did Romans uh, last time. Acts? Proverbs? Who said that? Pat? All right. Proverbs. Somebody else? Numbers? Numbers? I want somebody to be here. Okay, I'm, I'm hearing a few. Acts. Acts we've never done. Romans we've done. Revelations we've done. Ephesians we've done. Hebrews I've never done. Hebrews we haven't done here. Isaiah. Boy, that's, we'd be here for three years, but that's a good one. Huh? Daniel. That's deep. Oh, the, 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 okay, the showdown in the desert. Okay, we got that on CD right back there. No, I know, I'm, I'm kidding. All right, a couple more. I just want to know what you're thinking because I'm, I'm going to go pray about Matthew 24, prophecy. Did Genesis like six months ago, nine months ago, but that's good. So we have so many new people, they don't know where we've been. Okay, one more, I'm going to listen to one more. Esther, that's a good one. Okay, I've got a lot to pray about. I have heard, in essence, the Bible. That's what I've heard, the Bible. Now, I'll tell you what, what interest, may, Hebrews, we haven't done. Hebrews is really rich. Uh, it's, it's a little lengthy, but we, you know, it, we finished this in, in 12 weeks. And that's good, because Colossians, you can spend a year in it, easy. So, um, Hebrews is interesting. Um, Proverbs, that's, we'd be here a year, but that's a good one. You need more wisdom, Pat? Always, me too. All right? All right, I got a lot to pray about, but that's good because we're going somewhere new, not next Wednesday, but the one after, and it'll be good. What I love is that I have a church that loves the Word, and that's really, really important. Really important telling you. So let's look at, uh, let's pray and I'll let y'all sit down after I took this poll. Lord, we just thank you for 
the end now of Colossians and the incredible word that you gave us in this book. And Lord, we just pray that you'll speak to us tonight. Ground us in your word. Ground us in the scriptures. Ground us in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Enrich us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Now, will you just breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to my heart. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. All right, we're looking at Christ in Colossians, the habits of a successful Christian. Well, it's supposed to be Christian singular. I should have caught that. Uh, but guess what? Uh, one of the most popular books out there are the seven habits of highly successful people. How about looking at the habits of a successful Christian? Because you can be a successful person monetarily and be a failure spiritually. Now, last time we talked about two kinds of truth. These are really important. Say it with me, positional and practical. Those are two kinds of truth found in the Bible. Now, what do we mean by that? Positional ref truth refers to what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Colossians is full of that. Ephesians is. All the Pauline letters are. And, you know, when I say Pauline letter, let me be clear that the Spirit of God wrote the letter. Just use Paul. So when I say Pauline letter, the Holy Spirit was really big on positional truth. Positional truth is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It means it's done, finished, sealed, signed, delivered. That's it. It's a finished, done, completed fact when you talk about a positional truth. Example, we are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's a positional truth. Now, you're seated right here with me, aren't you? But where does God say you're seated? Read it with me. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus. With Christ. So where is Jesus? He's in heavenly places, seated on the right hand of God the Father. What does the Bible tell us uh, about us? We're there, seated with him, next to God in heavenly places. That's positional, but it's true. That's where you are. And as far as God's concerned, uh, it's a done deal. But in the meantime, we are trapped or stuck or have been left in time and space until we go to heaven, either by the rapture or by our bodies dying. So when you talk about positional truth, that's a good one. Now, practical tr truth refers to our walking out by faith in our earthly experience what God has done for us. He says, since you are seated with Jesus in heavenly places, seek those things that are above. So when God gives you a positional truth about you, what he's done for you, he will then give you a sense, this is true, here's the way I want you to walk in it on earth. He gives you a practical response to positional truth. So I wake up and I go, well, in God's mind, I am seated with Jesus in heavenly places. So in light of that, I'm going to let my affections be on things above, not on things of the earth. For I am dead and my life is hid with Christ in God. There's another positional one. 
I'm crucified with Christ. That's positional. So what does God say? Since you're crucified with Christ, then you crucify the flesh. Anytime he gives us a positional truth, he gives us a practical response that we lay hold of by faith. So, Paul illustrates this principle by telling us to put on or to put off different things, such as, he says in Colossians 3, verse 12, put on, read it with me, would you? Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So I'm literally to get dressed in that. I'm to put it on like I'm getting dressed. I'm to put it on by faith. I think sometimes we expect the fruit of the Spirit to kind of get us in a headlock. We wake up one day and we're just filled with love and, and, and God sort of, you know, brings us there by virtue of some anointing from heaven. But guess what? No. Paul, all the time, and hence the Holy Spirit, all the time, tells us, put on Jesus. Put on love. Put on tender mercy. Put on kindness. Get dressed in humility. Get dressed in meekness. Get dressed in long-suffering. Put it on. We are to be put-ons. And he says, put off the old man. Put off his old deeds. Put off the works of the flesh. Put off your old ways. So by faith, since I am dead with Christ and hidden with him, in heaven, then I am to put on Jesus Christ. I am to put on the fruit of the Spirit. I am to walk in that reality. So every morning you wake up, you say, I'm not going to walk out the door until I'm dressed in two ways. I'm, of course, dressed naturally. And then I'm dressed in the things of the Spirit. I put it on. So that's why you got to get in the Word. That's why you've got to live in the Word. You can't forsake the Word. You put on the Word of God, you're, you're getting dressed. Don't walk out the front door until you've been dressed twice. And when you're in rush hour traffic, put on Jesus. Put off the old man. Put off road rage. Put off impatience. Pastor Jeff, it can't be that easy. Well, I didn't say it was easy. I said that he said to do it. So by faith, we are to get dressed. Now that's, that's, that's what Paul says over and over and over again about our walk with Jesus. Putting on and putting off is how we are to walk out what God says about us. Amen? So try it. Try it tonight. Try it tomorrow when you get out of bed. Try it when you go to the workplace tomorrow. Just say, today, I'm going to put on Jesus. I'm going to put on love. If somebody irritates me, I'm going to stop and I'm going to think. And I'm going to say, now the Bible tells me in a moment like this, I am to put on Jesus Christ. Put on patience. Put on love. So by faith, I put it on. And you'd be amazed how the anointing of God will work with you in that and help you to do it. In essence, by putting on Jesus, we're literally dressing ourselves in him. This is the way Paul lived. This is the way Paul the Apostle lived, and so are the rest of the disciples. Okay? Now, Paul, after telling us to put on, put off, get dressed in Jesus, so on and so forth, he dealt with the roles of husbands, wives, and children. 
giving specific instructions from God to each one. We dealt with that last time. I would encourage you to get the tape if you missed it. Now this time we're going to look at, believe it or not, employer-employee relationships. Now I want you to notice how the Holy Ghost cares about every aspect of your life. Who would have thought that the Word of God would deal with the subject of how to get along with a boss at your job? Don't shout me down. <laughs> or how to be a good employer. I mean, do you see how the Holy Ghost meddles? He meddles. He comes into right where we live and says, here's the way you're to be. So once again, this is not Paul instructing us. It's the Holy Ghost through Paul. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All right? Now, read it with me. Bond servants, that is employees, obey in all things your masters, bosses. I got about two of you reading with me. Let's back up and try this again because this is the Bible. We're going to quote the Word of God. Bond servants, employees, obey in all things your masters, bosses, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. In other words, he's saying, don't do what's right only when he or she is looking. That's what eye service means. Don't do the right thing only when you know they're looking, and then when they're not looking, you're messing around. But do what you do at your job in sincerity of heart, fearing God, knowing that God is watching you. Now again, unless sin is being required by an authority figure, in which case it should be refused, Obedience to authority goes only so far as that authority is requesting you to do something reasonable. If an authority figure, be they a parent, a teacher, a boss, anybody, asks you to do something sinful, that is where your obedience stops. Because you won't sin for any man or woman. The principle of obedience holds true in the workplace. As long as it's reasonable and doesn't require you to be immoral or to steal or anything like that. Employees are to render, according to the Spirit of God, faithful, diligent, Christ-like service. For the hours he's on the job and employees' time and talents belong to the employer. And boy, I could go so much into this. Um, you know, our country is becoming an entitlement country. 50% of people are not paying taxes. Uh, in the last year, more people have been on food stamps than any other time in the history of America. Now, I understand food stamps. If you're looking and working hard eight hours a day, ten hours a day, looking for a job, and you're in real trouble, I have no issue with food stamps. But the Bible has a real issue with somebody living off of other people's labor. It's not right. It's not Christian. It should not happen. You should not be receiving entitlement benefits if you are a capable individual. You ought to be out there. You say, well, Pastor, I'm looking for my, my golden opportunity. Well, get something under the golden arches until the golden opportunity comes along. But we ought to work. Because I don't like paying hard-earned taxes to people who are sitting at home doing nothing because they know they can get away with it. You ought not be working the system if you're a capable person, have more self-respect than that. 
Seriously. Have more self-respect than that. Don't live off other people's work. That's cheap. Now, we ought to be working for somebody. We ought to be giving our talents and our time to somebody else to make them successful. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Now, here is the key to doing a good job at your job. Whatever you do, do it heartily. Read this next part with me. As to the Lord and not to men. Who are you working for? That's right. If you're a believer, you're working for Jesus. Isn't that what he said right here? He said, whatever you do, whatever, that's a lot of things, whatever, that's everything. Whatever you do, do it heartily, happily, cheerfully, energetically, because you're doing it for the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of people I wouldn't care to work for, but I can sure work for Jesus. Amen. I can work for Jesus. Now, here's why. Because knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance... Your ultimate payback is going to come from Jesus, not a man, not a woman. That's what he's saying. Now watch. For you serve the Lord Christ no matter what you do. If you're working at McDonald's flipping hamburgers, every hamburger you, fl you flip, you're doing it for Jesus. And, and so if you're looking at that boss, and that boss is imperfect, of course he is, he's human. You're looking at that boss, and he may be ornery, he may be difficult, he may be sinful, he may be everything that you don't like. But if you look past him to who's standing behind him and who is Lord of your life, say, I can't work for him exuberantly, energetically, but I can work for Jesus no matter where he puts me. Energetically, exuberantly, because Jesus is the one that's going to reward me. Paul tells Christian employees they ought to be the best, the most trustworthy, the most loyal, faithful, and industrious people in the workforce. They ought to shine. Whether the boss is fair or unfair, a bully or a benevolent employer, the Christian can work as unto the Lord with joy. After all, it's the Lord who will reward us. Think about that. And this is true of all submission. Now, let me talk to you just for a minute about the whole idea of submission. That word's gotten a bad, bad rap in our day because we're in a rebellious, apostate culture that hates authority. So because our culture hates authority, by and large, resents authority and rebels against authority, they rebel against the whole notion of submission. But here's the key of submission. Submission understands that the person you're submitting to is not perfect and is going to make mistakes. And so here's our natural inclination. I say I'm working for a boss and I, and I see this, this, this man or this woman making some big mistakes. But I'm not in a position to do anything about it. I'm an employee. Now I can either quit or I can try to change it. That is, insert myself where I really have not been invited. Or I can say, Lord, I see this individual making so many mistakes or making some real bad decisions. It's going to hurt the company. It's going to lead us in a bad way. But Lord, submission says, I trust you. This is true of a woman submitting to a man, 
a wife submitting to a husband, an employee submitting to an employer. Sarah, ladies, is your example. Sarah was married to a man that lied about her. So she, she's my sister. Abraham told a half lie. A half lie is a total lie. A white lie is a lie. There's no white lie, black lie, in between lie. Lies, a lie is a lie. He lied. She's my sister. He didn't want to say she's my wife because he was afraid they'd kill him to get to her. So he lied. She gets carried off to a, to a pagan king's castle. And what is Abraham doing? He's back there being a coward, doing this. Whew, that was close. God be with Sarah. Now, do we see Sarah when they come to take her away going, now wait just a minute. This dude is not my brother. This is my husband, my man. He's lying to you. He'd have been dead right on the spot. Nope, she, she gave it to God. She trusted God. God gave the king a dream, said, you touch that woman, I'm going to kill you. He got rid of her so fast the next morning, the sun didn't even have to rise. He took her quick back to Abraham and said, why'd you lie to me? Now you've got a pagan king lecturing a man of God. Why did you lie? Here's the whole point. Peter says, ladies, Sarah's your example. She's your example in that she trusted a fault, uh, a fault-making, misguided, wrong-headed, decision-making husband knowing that God was bigger than him and God protected her. All of submission involves trusting God when the person you're submitted to is making some mistakes. So, I can't just sit back and let them make mistakes. Well, well, sure you can, especially if you don't have any authority to do anything about it. You just pray for them. And, and you know what? They may have to learn from their mistakes with you, you sitting right there. But they'll learn. As for you, your part is to say, I'm working as unto the Lord and not unto men. Or I'm submitting as unto the Lord and not unto men. And so I trust the Lord who I'm submitted to, that he's bigger than these circumstances, bigger than this person, bigger than these bad decisions. He's bigger. Are y'all with me? Yes. Submission isn't easy, but it is very misunderstood. And you'll find, and once again, you never do anything sinful for an authority figure. That's where it stops. But you'll find that God will deal with the situation and bless you as you just take it to God in prayer and submit and do your part and leave the rest to him. That's what Sarah did. And don't you know they had a talk on the road. <laughs> don't you know they had a talk on the road. When that king brought her back and turned her over to her husband, don't you know the servants had to get a little ways away while Sarah told him what for? Because she could do it. 
You leave me in the hands of a pagan king? You lied? You sorry sucker? You tell me you're a man of God? I can just hear it. <laughs> oh, I guarantee you he got in trouble on the road. Now look at verse 25. But he who does wrong, wow, here's a promise, will be repaid for what he has done and there is no partiality. Shining service will be rewarded. Shoddy service will be punished. Whether Christian or not, here's a news flash for you. God does not have one set of rules for the lost and another set of rules for the found. Christians ought to work hard just like non-Christians, really a little bit harder. In the workplace, it's what we say. It's what we do. It's what we are that matters. Not whether or not we're Christians. Don't ask me to work hard. I'm a Christian. Don't do that. What's rewarded at a job is work. Not who you are when you walk away. Promotion or judgment is always going to be based on our works, good or bad, in the workplace. We get that? Amen? Isn't that good? So get out there and shine and work for Jesus. Do it for him. Work as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that he's going to reward you. He's going to bless you. He'll promote you if you go in there with a good attitude and a smile on your face and submit to the Lord Jesus in that workplace. Amen. Now, next he talks to employers. And he says in chapter 4, verse 1, read it with me. Masters, bosses, give your bondservants, employees, what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, he's not going to leave the boss unaddressed here. He says if employees have their tasks, employers have their trusts, their responsibilities under God. The employer has a right to expect the best kind of work from his employees. And the employee has a right to expect fair treatment from their employer. Now, look where he's going to go with this. They have a right to expect adequate pay, that their work conditions are safe and clean, and that benevolence is shown for their general welfare. In other words, the boss should care, not be some jerk. James spoke harshly and with a warning to bad employers or bad bosses when he said this, look here, you rich people, there he's talking to bosses here, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire pocket it he continues this treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment why there's nothing wrong with treasure why is the treasure they had accumulated going to speak against them on the day of judgment here's why for listen hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay see when you get money by cheating it burns a hole in your pocket. It judges you at the last day. Instead of blessing you, it curses you. You can't get blessed money by cheating. That's what he's saying. 
He said, look at this. He said, the very wealth that you're counting on is going to eat your flesh away like fire. It's going to be evidence against you on the day of judgment. Why? Because it was money wrongly gotten. It was gotten by cheating the laborer of his wages. Whew. There's a lot of people in America need to hear that one. Our government needs to hear that one. No wonder we're not financially blessed in America. We're cheating so many people out of money, it's not even funny. Now, the wages you held back, he goes on. This is James continuing. The wages you held back cry out against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. Woo! So if you hold back money wrongfully, you cheat people out of their money, their cries goes up to the ears of Jesus. And it can't be blessed. It can't be blessed, folks. You can't rob Peter to pay Paul. You can't cheat people out of their money and think that it's going to be blessed money. I've seen money, I've seen people get money that I knew they got it wrongfully. And it was like a great wind came and just blew it out of their hands. It's like there's huge holes in their pockets. They couldn't hang on to it. They lost it. Get your money honestly. Get it righteously. Get it rightly. And then sow some into the kingdom of God. That'll be blessed money. So here James and then Paul in Colossians is telling these employers, you better be fair to your employees. You better give them the money they deserve. Don't hold anything back. Don't hire somebody to do something and then tell them you don't have the money for it after they finish the job. So God is the vindicator of both the wronged employee and the wronged employer. God will vindicate. Folks, God sees everything. He's way more involved in life than we think he is. What's the fear of the Lord? It's the continual awareness that God is watching and weighing every one of my thoughts my words, my actions, and my attitudes. Continual awareness that God is watching and weighing in the balances. Every one of my thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. That's the fear of the Lord. If you know that, then you treat people fairly. Be good to people. Be good to people. Even, even skunks, be good to them. Even ornery crooks. Be good to them. That is, just smile. Hey, good to see. Bless them. Be good to people. Help people. Sow into people. Now Paul comes to the habits that make for a successful Christian. Here they are. He begins with prayer as the guarded habit of our life. Read this with me, would you? Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Now, the word continue means to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty. Continue in prayer despite difficulty. It means to persist in the siege, to persevere. It means staying in a fixed direction. I cannot be diverted from the place of prayer. I'm fixed in it. 
I am not going to give up on my siege against the works of the enemy. Despite difficulty, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be a prayer. I'm going to continue in it. Prayer is to be the great intense habit of our lives. We are to stay in the fixed direction of prayer. Whether you feel like it or not, pray. Whether you feel an anointing to do it or not, pray. Get down on your knees and say, Lord, I don't feel like praying, and God will help you to pray. If you've got to start right there and say, Lord, I feel as dry as a bone. Help me to pray. He'll help you to pray. But don't ever give up on prayer. Let your life be always pointed in that direction. That's what he's saying to the Colossians. Here's the bottom line. Thinking of the whole chapter we've been in, husbands and wives and all of that, if the wife is to submit to her husband, if the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, if the young person is to submit to his parents, if parents are to keep from discouraging their children, if men are to serve their employers as under the Lord, and if masters are to care for the well-being of their employees as those accountable to God, then all of them must pray. They must pray. So say with me, prayer is the guarded habit of my life. And it should also be, Paul says, the grateful habit of our lives. Paul exhorts us to do it with thanksgiving. How grateful we should be that at Calvary, Jesus tore aside the temple veil and blazed the way for us right into the very presence of God. And we can come to him whenever we like, stay as long as we like, and discuss whatever we like, and we're not charged by the hour. What a privilege to come into the courts of the king and get a hearing. Amen? Prayer should be not only the guarded and the grateful habit of our life, but prayer should be the grandest habit of our life. Read with me what Paul said. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Look at the power of prayer here. It can open prison doors. It can open a sinner's heart. It can open an apostle's mouth with boldness. Prayer can open doors that no man can open and it can touch with boldness the lips of the most timid person. Prayer. And we got there in England and we prayed with these English people and just began to call down the power of God and went in there to do that service and the power of God just began to move these people coming down with demons coming out of them and crying out, led a Muslim to Christ over at this end of the altar, a Muslim right down here saying, I need to come to Christ, just led him to Christ, and, and all this happening. Why did it happen? Because prayer opened the prison doors. Prayer made a way where there was no way. Always have your life in the direction of prayer. It can transcend circumstances and carry God's Word across vast reaches of space, this church is going to reach the world with the Word because of prayer. It's going to happen. Think about it. As gifted as Paul was, he needed the fervent prayers of God's people to touch his heart and to loose his tongue. He needed prayer. 
Now next, Paul tells us that we ought to guard our testimony. We're coming to the end here, but this is so important. Guard our testimony. Read with me what he said. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. What an interesting phrase. Those who are outside. King James says those who are without. Those who are outside. Those who are outside refers to the lost. Now, so what did he say? Walk in wisdom towards those who are lost. Walk in wisdom towards those who are lost. The phrase is used often in Scripture. Mark 4.11 says, Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. You're either in or you're out of the kingdom of God. There is no fence. There is no midway. Paul told the Corinthians, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? I'm not going to judge them. He goes on to say, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, who judges them? God. And in the Apocalypse, book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, John describes the bliss of those who are within and the tragic condition of those who are outside. He says, quote, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Those who are outside. Paul's gist is that as Christians, we're to be ever mindful of the watching eyes and the listening ears of the lost. If they know you're saved, they're watching you. And if they don't know you're saved, they should. So often we talk in ways or act in ways that unbeknownst to us are observed by the skeptical ears and eyes of those that are outside. And they're looking in. You really got something I don't have? Let me see what you say you saw. I'm watching you, dude. I'm watching you, lady. I'm watching you since you told me you're a believer. I want to see if there's any difference between you and me. Be wise, he says, and careful not to make them stumble. Now, we must not only guard our testimony, but we should also guard our time. Here's Paul, redeeming the time. He says it here, and he says it in Ephesians. The word redeem means to make the most of. We are stewards of our time. Let me tell you some things about time. Time's a non-renewable resource. Once used, it cannot ever be retrieved. We invest it into either something good and productive or we waste it on something totally useless. TV. <laughs> Hollywood movies, you know, that kind of thing. Guess what? Every day we're given 11 or 1,440 minutes. Every day we've got 1,440 minutes to be spent in any way we choose. Think of it this way. Imagine a rich man offering to give you $1,440 a day to spend. Wouldn't you like that? Here's $1,440 a day to spend. You have to spend it, says the rich man. Any money not spent at the end of the day is lost. The same sum arrived each day until the end of your life. And at the end, an accounting was made as to what the recipient, what you did with $1,440 a day. It was either used wisely or squandered used to buy things for yourself or in helping others. It was to be wasted on foolishness or invested for eternity. How did you spend it? 
It'll be just that way when we come before God and he wants to know what we did with our time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Make the most of your time. Guarding our testimony and guarding our time, we're also to guard our speech. And I'm going to close with this. Read it with me, can you? Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every person. So our speech is to include three things. Grace is the first one. Let your speech always be with grace. Have you ever noticed how often we alienate people with our tongues? James says in chapter 3, For we all stumble in many things. If anybody does not stumble in word, he is perfect. And there's no one in this place tonight perfect. Able also to bridle the whole body. You can bridle your tongue, you can bridle your whole body. And the tongue is a fire, is a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles our whole body. And it sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. Unless, of course, you're saved. Saved people have nothing to do with that, right? That's a joke, son. Because saved people do all these things, don't they? Saved people got to watch that tongue. You know, they say the church has a great mind that Ernest and Julio Gallo would envy. That went right over most of y'all's heads. Just burn. They're winemakers, you know, the vine, grape vine. All right. We speak hastily. We speak judgmentally. We speak harshly. We speak hurtfully. Paul tells us to work on seasoning our speech with grace, meaning extend a blessing with what you say. And my clicker quit working here. There we go. There we go. And not just grace, but salt. Salt. He says seasoned with salt. Now, salt does three things. It adds taste. A lot of foods would be tasteless without salt. We're to add pungency to our speech. Spice it up with conversation with things that are uplifting, interesting, and helpful. Second, salt arrests corruption. The Christian's conversation should be a constant rebuke to those who take the Lord's name in vain or who traffic in filth. Our speech should squelch gossip, slander, rumor-mongering, and idle chatter. We ought not add to it. We ought to squelch it. And third, salt creates thirst. Can we stand together? And let me close just reading this. Our talk should make people thirsty for the water of life. I'll talk about Jesus in a way that just makes them thirsty. I was listening to a woman the other day. She was describing a restaurant she'd gone to we were in, actually, we were in England. I heard her talking about this. She'd gone to a restaurant and ordered this dish. And she started explaining and describing this dish. I mean, she used every adjective imaginable to describe this dish. When she was done, I needed a bib. <laughs> I wanted to go find what she was talking about. And then I realized that's exactly what we're supposed to do with Jesus. Oh, he's so good, he's so kind, he's so loving, he's so merciful. He blesses my steps, he orders my way, he saved my soul, he lifted my birth. We ought to talk about Jesus where they need a bib. Amen. Jesus did this by the time he was talking to the woman at the well. She said, give me this water that I thirst not. And we'll close right there. 
Lord, we just thank you right now for the blessing of God on the house of God. Thank you, Lord, for the word of the Lord. We ask you to help us to be so filled with Jesus that we make this city thirsty. We make our neighbors thirsty. That we do such a good job at our job. That there is such a grace on us that people want to know where we got it. Help us, Lord, to submit as unto you and not as unto men. Thank you for blessing us in our going out and our coming in. In the storehouse and in the field, we thank you for blessing us. Let's worship just one time before we go tonight. Lift it up, everybody.